Blog Talk Radio. Alrighty guys, welcome to the July 8th episode of RoboGuard Radio. I am your host, KZ. Um, this episode of RoboGuard Radio is brought to you by our sponsors, FogCityWrestling.com and WrestleWarehouse.com. You can uh, get Lucha Libre DVDs, uh, Lucha masks, T-shirts, a bunch of different things at Wrestle Warehouse. Um, I strongly, strongly recommend any of the SoCal Pro Wrestling DVDs from this year. Um, it's just been amazing. SoCal Crazy has been amazing. The NWA World Heavyweight Champion has been amazing. Uh, Scrap Iron Adam Pierce, uh, Ricky Mandel, uh, the Ballard Brothers. Uh, yeah, I mean they've brought in Scorpio Sky. They're they're bringing in uh, Joey Ryan this coming weekend. Um, there's just been a top-notch product. Um, <clears throat> before we get our guests on and and start going, um, I have an announcement to make regarding uh, our show. Um, in our format, um, I've discussed it with the powers of B and the staff of Rubber Guard Radio, and we've decided that we are going to cut the show down to one show a week instead of two. Um, I'm starting a new job tomorrow, and honestly, I'm not going to have the time to uh, put on two shows a week, so we're going to go strictly to Thursday nights, uh, seven, same time, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific time, 10 p.m. Uh, Eastern so we're gonna, you know, we're gonna keep that going just Thursdays. Uh, I have to drop the Tuesday show, uh, due, you know, due to me uh, starting a new job. So, uh, yeah, um, what happened was I'm having some technical issues here. I had to restart my computer <laughs> last minute. So uh, what we're gonna do is I'm just going to uh, run across some news real quick. Um, actually, to be honest, I don't even know if there's any news. I, I've been away all day, so I've been conducting a super secret business as far as uh, Rubber Guard Radio is concerned, so I'm waiting for the uh, website up here to load, so, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, let's talk UFC, um, well, while I'm waiting for the website to load and I can get the uh, the, the board going, um, as far as the, the main event for this past UFC, uh, well, Rampage Jackson and Forrest Griffin. I had it scored a draw on 47-47. Um, I gave I gave Forrest uh, one of those rounds was a 10-8 round. So um, I think it was a draw. But that you know that that's just my my opinion. But you know I I don't think that Forrest you know won. I think it was at at, at least a draw. Um, but yeah, it was a, an action-packed show. And uh, let's see. I have Alex waiting on hold, so let's uh, let's get the uh, RoboGuard Radio site up and running here, so we can patch in my co-host Alex Saint. Bear with me, brother. Let's get to the switchboard here. Okay, come on. This thing is slow loading, but yeah. Um, overall, it was it was a pretty good show. Um, you should go out of your way to check it out. Uh, no doubt. It you know it was a very fun show. Um, I have on the line here. Come on, come on, come on. Load, jeez. Okay, Alex, are you in the house? Hello. Awesome. Hello. You sounded cold and uh, scared without me. Hey, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't remember the UFC from Saturday, so don't ask me about it. All I know is 
Is that my boy, Forrest Griffin, won the light heavyweight title? I've like been telling everybody since this match was announced. I had it at a draw. Call draw from the sucked last night, too. Hold on, Alex. Relax. Call it from the 208. Who am I speaking with? Hello? Yes. From the 208. This is, Ma- this this is, is Max Payne. Awesome. How you doing, Max? Good, brother. How's it going? Oh, great. Now I got my website up and running. Uh, Sounds like my work. life's going a little better than yours right now, bro. <laughs> ah, tremendous, tremendous. How you doing, brother? I'm doing fantastic. Tremendous, tremendous. So um, I, I, I just have to ask. We we haven't heard from you since the Eota days with Dave Meltzer. Where have you been hiding? You know, I um, when I quit the wrestling business, um, I I quit with uh, uh, in mind. Uh, I had I had four children that were at the age where they needed fatherly attention. And I had watched so many wrestlers um, lose their families. I made a commitment to myself I wasn't going to do the same thing. And so I I uh, spent the next few years um, raising my children. So I, I uh, left the business to raise my children. Wow. That takes a real man, and I can... Well, I don't know if I... You know, the funny part about that is, is I, without sounding like uh, somebody who's just doubting you fundamentally, I, I, it's one of those things where I don't consider it uh, something to be praised for. If you have children, you, they deserve to have a father. So I did it not to be noble because I did it because it was my job. So thank you for the compliment, but it's, uh, it was what needed to be done. So Tremendous, tremendous. Well, we're, we're, we're going to start from the top. We we know that you you wrestled amateur on and off and you did it in the college and you you ran into Red Bastine who's a legend out out here in my area I'm in San Francisco and yeah of course Red so that was his, that's his stomping grounds yeah Texas Red and uh, so uh, what what made you decide to uh, to get trained and and to to break into the business. Well, you know, it's funny because, like you said, I, I did have an amateur wrestling career, but the funny part about my career is, is probably a little unique. When I was a kid, um, I was an amateur wrestler, and uh, I started wrestling like in second grade. We had a, a very good uh, little kids program in my hometown of Pleasant Grove, Utah, and we had a young coach at the time, a guy by the name of Daryl Hendry, who who went on to be a NCAA official and worked in the amateur wrestling circles for years. And, and uh, I swore I'd never wrestle. When I was younger, I swore I'd only play football, but I, I had an assistant football coach who told me if I didn't wrestle, I couldn't play football. And I said, well, okay, I guess, then I guess I'm wrestling. And um, he, uh, I, I, went, I went into the wrestling business, or into the, in, not the wrestling business, but the amateur wrestling world very young, um, in my life, and I was a very lucky young man. When I was 16 years old, I was involved in a wrestling movie, an amateur wrestling movie called Takedown. And uh, not only did the amateur wrestling bug bite me, but more importantly, um, the the film industry bug bit me. I, I, I immediately fell in love with television and film and uh, wanted to pursue that um, the rest of my life. Uh, as you can imagine, it was a it was a pretty tumultuous time. I was not only amateur wrestling when I was doing this movie, but I was 
I was also shooting a movie uh, anywhere from 14 to 18 hours a day. It was crazy. I don't know if you've ever if you've ever been involved in the film industry at all. They have they usually have a very tight schedule. They work very hard to to, to pump movies out, especially if it's a low budget film. And this was a low budget film. But um, I loved the film industry and I loved amateur wrestling. But that same year, uh, my wife at the time got pregnant, and I dropped out of high school and uh, started to work. Uh, work construction, had my head down, my butt in the air for uh, about a year, and realized I didn't want to work construction the rest of my life. And I'd already talked to a guy by the name of Tommy Chesborough from Oklahoma State University about coming there as a junior, when I was a junior in high school, uh, about coming to Oklahoma State. And... Um, so I, I went and took my GED and called him on the phone and said, hey, uh, remember me? And he said, yeah, of course. And what are you doing? I said, well, I graduated from high school, and I, I'd love to be an amateur wrestler. And uh, I ended up uh, not going to Oklahoma State. I went to a junior college in, in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, for two years and then ended up finishing out my NCAA career at Iowa State University. And the whole time, as you, I'm sure you guys know, the, the amateur wrestlers – um, if you've been in the amateur wrestling world or if you are an amateur wrestler, there's, it's kind of a stigma to be called a professional wrestler because, you know, of the stigma of professional wrestling. Professional wrestling's fake. And so I swore in magazines and, and any interviews I did, because people would always ask me, I was the obvious candidate, of course, to go to professional wrestling because I was a I was an obviously big dude, you know, who seemed like the perfect guy to do it. And I swore I'd never do it. And um, when I was going to college, I, I, I ran across uh, a, the, a guy had come through to shoot interviews for the NCAA wrestling tournament so that when they aired it on ABC, they'd have, you know, different guys talking about why they were wrestlers and where they were from and so on and so forth. And um, he was, uh, uh, you know, he was a videographer. And I moved to Los Angeles as soon as I graduated from college and uh, to seek fame and fortune, if you will, but certainly wasn't thinking about professional wrestling. Moved there completely with the intent to get in the television and film industry and couldn't find a job at all in Los Angeles. I was actually at my wit's end. And uh, one day I, my cousin won a, uh, some tickets to a movie premiere called uh, Pee-wee's Big Top. And I went to that, and I, I met a security guard there and said, you know, hey, how hard is it to get a job being a security guard? He said, did you have a job in five minutes? And I called the boss, who happened to be from Utah and knew who I was. He hired me on the spot, and three days after I started working there, um, went to a boxing match at the Palladium on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. It was uh, Tate Tillman and Gonzalez. I'll never forget it because it was a big day of my life. And uh, on that day, I met the guy that I'd done the interviews with in at, North, or at, at Iowa State. He gave me a job working uh, as a videographer. And then the owner of the company, the guy that was from Utah, knew who I was, said, hey, you ever thought about being a professional wrestler? If you have, i got a guy you got to meet. And he introduced me to Red Bastine. So that was a long way to get to the story and how I, I found professional wrestling. But that's it. I met Red, and then the rest is is history from there. I, I don't I don't mean to, to go so far backwards, but uh, you had mentioned that you started at a young age doing amateur wrestling, and so yeah. there's there's a thought uh, uh, certain people have that a lot of 
good professional wrestlers now, they'd be going into mixed martial arts now. Do you, do you see yourself maybe in that kind of category of mixed martial arts had maybe been popular around the time that you started amateur wrestling, that maybe you would have shifted to a different uh, a different lifestyle, I guess? You mean to, be, to become a, a mixed martial arts guy? By the professional wrestler, yes, because he did start amateur wrestling at a young age. You know, I guess the reason I'm I guess the reason I'm telling you that story and, and brought the movie up is to say, probably you know, probably not. Um, even though I'll, I'll tell, tell you some of the stuff about Japan um, in, in a few minutes because it's certainly pertinent to this, but um, probably not because when I when I got in once Red introduced me to professional wrestling, you know, I had all these predisposed ideas about professional wrestling. But then once you do it and you realize what a difficult profession it is, um, you you realize that it's much more than uh, what it's supposed to be, if you will. I mean, you do get hurt. It does take incredible devotion. It does take incredible tenacity and skill. So I'm not sure I would have because, uh, quite honestly, by the time I finished my amateur wrestling career, I was ready to be done with amateur wrestling because it was <laughs> a tough son of a bitch. I, you know, it's you know, it's it's it's, it's a very very tough sport. So, um, but professional wrestling, uh, I got it. I think you know, right from the beginning. And what I loved about it is, I was already I already loved the showbiz side of of wrestling. And so. Mm-hmm. Um, once I dismissed all my predisposed ideas about professional wrestling and realized that I could probably have a great opportunity doing it, uh, it was a very easy transfer. Transfer. I ended up doing a lot of mixed martial arts. I, I trained in Japan with, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, the UWF with uh, Aida and Takata and uh, uh, Fujiwara and all the greats. In fact, I think I may be wrong, but if I'm not mistaken, that may have been one of the the first companies that led on the in, inroads for companies like the UWF and, or the UFC, excuse me, and really sort of started the shoot mentality of wrestling, uh, and, uh, professional wrestling in a public forum. So I ended up in a roundabout way doing what you're talking about. Um, vicariously through New Japan Pro Wrestling. So uh, I did it even though I'm not sure I would have done it at a young age. Right. Um, I, I know this is skipping well, well before, and I do want to hear about your career leading up to you training at the New Japan Dojo. But you've met uh, Mr. Inoki, I imagine, more than a handful of times. And then also sure. you said you did some wrestling for UWF, UWFI, so I imagine you know Nobika Takata and Kara Maeda. How much of an influence do you think uh, Antonio Inoki was to Akira Maeda and Nobuhiko Takata doing what they did later. Because as we all know, Antonio Noki had that boxer versus wrestler mismatch with Muhammad Ali in 76. So obviously right. an MMA mentality had been in uh, Anoki's head for a while. So how much do you think MMA has to, I guess, uh, thank Mr. Anoki? Well, I, I think, I think uh, you know, Anoki was is a very enigmatic character, man. I, you know, he was one of those people that, um, you know, you look at the guy, and he was such a typical wrestling mentality, and you look at him, and he just didn't look that badass. But I, uh, Chris Benoit and I one time were standing there watching that guy, and he put 415 on a bench and did reps for 12. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> we're both wow. there with our tongues dropped out. And Anoki was just that kind of guy. He used to have uh, Reiki people sit in the dressing room with him all the time. And the boys would laugh at him, you know, sort of in the background. But no one ever doubted his ability to influence professional wrestling. He was a huge influence on those guys. And quite frankly, I know at the time, um, that that organization, when it first started out, failed miserably. And had it not been for Inoki's company buying them and bringing them on with New Japan to sort of give them a, a different kind of legitimacy, I think Inoki deserves some big props because he was, he was a huge... Uh, factor in that company continuing so um now let's backtrack now you uh you began your training with red bastine how much different did your amateur wrestling training uh how much of it do you feel like you used when it came to professional wrestling you know i'll be honest with you i had to shut it off because it's a completely different mentality isn't it i mean when you look at it um you know i like to i like to equate wrestling to ballet you know nobody can say if you if you were to look at a ballet if you were to go to watch swan lake or whatever and you were to watch a ballet there'd be no doubt that every single move that they do is choreographed however would you consider ballet not to be an incredibly difficult task and feat and um i think professional wrestling is the same kind of mentality even though it's I always talk about it as, as though it's much more spontaneous choreography because of the nature of what we do. But uh, I think, uh, for me, I had to really, and, and, and honestly, like I was telling you, for me it was easy to dismiss my amateur ways because I was so ready to be done with amateur wrestling. I'd done it for 13 years. Uh, you know, I'd wrestled all the way through college, um, and it was an incredibly difficult lifestyle. Um, not to mention I was married, I had kids, I was going to school full-time, I worked a full-time job because I had kids, there wasn't any provisions for NCAA athletes, so it was easy for me to dismiss amateur wrestling, but however, I would never want to say that it didn't help me through professional wrestling. To give you a definition of exactly how it helped me, I'm not sure I could tell you other than um, sheer tenacity. You know, you've got to have a tenacity to be a wrestler, a professional wrestler, because anybody who thinks that professional wrestling's not every bit as tough as amateur wrestling, they're up in the night. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you got started in uh, in Los Angeles. You said you got started. I did. Okay, so can can you bridge us between Los Angeles and your training at the New Japan Dojo? Because it's very interesting how you would get out there. Well, you know, that's a very, that's a very uh, incredible time in my life. When I started with Red, Red almost immediately offered me a job working for the WWF, uh, building the ring and carrying jackets back. So um, while I was training with Red, I was also building the ring for the WWF on the West Coast. Red was a, he was a ring agent at the time, so I spent a lot of time uh, carrying jackets and so forth. And then uh, one time, Red just said to me, he said, uh, you know, actually, I said to him, I said, Red, I'll go anywhere to be a wrestler. And he says, you know, you better be careful. You never know what, you might get what you wish for. And I bet it wasn't a week later that uh, he called me and he said, listen, the New, J- the New Japan 
uh, wrestling organization has a representative in Los Angeles, a lady by the name of Chica Kujaroka, who uh, wants to come and watch you because they're looking for a couple of Americans or, you know, a couple of gaijins, if you will, to bring into the dojo. So um, I will have to tell you, one of the times when my wrestling, my amateur wrestling came into to play was when I went to try out for Chica, um, one of the wrestlers that, that I was working with in the ring tried to take the piss out of me. And Red had warned me. Red was really insightful, and he really had a great way of knowing how guys work. Well, this guy thought it was going to be a tryout for him, so he thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll show this guy up in the ring. And uh-huh. uh, I just took him down and stretched the piss out of him in front of Chica. <laughs> and, and, and it got over. You know, she loved it, and uh, they immediately offered me an opportunity there. So within three months of working for Red, I'd been offered the opportunity to go to New Japan Dojo. So we didn't really go into this because uh, I know you said you started amateur at a really young age. So I'm, can I make the assumption that you really you did not follow professional wrestling very closely at all uh, as, a, as a youth or into your adult age, correct? Well, I'll, I have to tell you the truth. It would be obvious, but when I was young, I was a one hell of a troubled kid in the sense that my mother had hired me, you know, beautiful young girl uh, babysitters, and I'd spend most of my time trying to fill their tits. And so uh, <laughs> finally they got tired of playing me off even at five years old. And so she started, started hiring me uh, male babysitters, uh, you know, teenage guys. And my mother paid really well and always fed these guys incredibly well, had great food for them and donuts and all kinds of stuff. So any kid she would offer a job, you know, that she'd pay him 25 bucks to look after me for the night. So she always would hire these young men to come and look after me because they didn't have tits and it wasn't a problem. So um, <laughs> these one of the guys, I'll never forget, his name was Brent Jenkins. He was the son of uh, my piano teacher when I was a kid. And... Uh, he would come to babysit me, and every time he would come to babysit me, he'd go, now, don't go to sleep tonight, dude. We're going to stay up and watch Rocky Mountain Wrestling. And in Utah, there was an organization called Rocky Mountain Wrestling when I was a kid. And I, I think out of all the times that he babysat me, I think I made it to, like, one match when I was really <laughs> young. So I was always enthralled to actually watch it and had seen it and, and did you know, sort of love it, um, but amateur wrestling, you know, sort of turned me away from it. So I didn't follow it a ton. Uh, I knew about it. Obviously, the Hogan era, I mean, how the hell did you not follow it? It was the most exciting yeah. thing on TV at the time. So, you know, uh, I, I didn't. I wasn't a, a big follower, but, I, you know, I, I knew enough and, and knew most of the people that were, that were popular through – that time in my life, but I, you're right. I didn't follow it big time. No, because the only way, because the reason why I bring this up is this: that the closest thing that I can even comprehend uh, a training at the New Japan Dojo is that I have. Uh, I currently am in the United States Marine Corps, so I went to uh, Marine Corps boot camp. So that's the closest thing I can, you know, attribute it to uh, the New Japan Dojo. It, it, it probably wasn't as hard as the New Japan Dojo in the '80s, I promise. So it just seems to me uh, very hard to want to make it through this this rigorous dojo uh considering you didn't come from a, a fondness of professional wrestling so do you feel like uh 
how do you feel like you got through those times, or, you know, the tough times? Well, first of all, brother, before I go any further, you know, God bless you for being a soldier. Um, my hat's off to any soldier, and I certainly would not even have the unmitigated audacity to compare wrestling to, to learning how to kill for a living. Uh, I know how hard it is to be a soldier, and I, I wasn't one, but I certainly respect that with all my heart. So in fairness to being a soldier, I won't try to compare it. Um, but what I will say is, I think what prepared me for New Japan was obviously my amateur wrestling career. Yeah. You know, I, I, when, if you, if you've been around the amateur wrestling world, have you guys been, were you guys amateur wrestlers? No, we didn't have an amateur wrestling program in my high school. Right. Yeah. California, unfortunately dumped it. Are you guys both from California? Uh, I live there now, but originally I'm from Mississippi. So in, in the oh, South, okay. the amateur wrestling yeah. isn't. It's pretty much dead there as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I just, uh, if, you're, if you've been in the amateur wrestling world, the thing that's really cool about amateur wrestling is it's such a double full sport in this sense. It, it's obviously an individual sport, but it's an incredible team sport too because you've got 11 other guys that, you know, you're, you're part of a team with. So you train together, and you, you have to be a unit. And one of the great things that amateur wrestling teaches you, and part of the reason I always chose to try to go to the great schools with wrestling, uh, with amateur wrestling like North Idaho Junior College and Iowa State, is one of the big quotes in the amateur wrestling world is you're only as badass as the guy you're wrestling in the room. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you, when you decide to be an amateur wrestler, first of all, you're already missing a chromosome if you decide to go that way anyway. Cause it, it's such a badass. It is a badass sport. It does take a level of commitment that there's just got to be something missing in your brain to want to do it. Um, but then again, there's this unparalleled passion and love for it. It's a, such a love-hate relationship, which I'm sure probably there is some of that, you know, going through Marine Corps as well. But, you know, when, you, when you're that devoted to something and you learn what it means to be the best you can possibly be in your sport, um, and I, would, I certainly don't want to act like I arose to the absolute highest pinnacle in the amateur wrestling world. I had a great career. I was a national champion on a national championship team in junior college. as a fifth in the NCAAs. I hold a record in the NCAAs. But I didn't rise as high as I would like to have. But the level of commitment that you have to make is is so incredibly intense. Uh, it was it was an easy preparation and an easy uh, segue from amateur wrestling into New Japan Pro Wrestling. And quite honestly, uh, by the time I went to New Japan, <clears throat> it was actually like I was just starting the next season in amateur wrestling because I. I had quit uh, amateur wrestling in March of that year, uh, and uh, or maybe the fall before, I can't remember, but I'd only been out of amateur wrestling for a total of probably a year when I went to New Japan. And I'll be honest with you guys, I was not, I was not prepared for how tough <laughs> the New Japan dojo was. I really wasn't. How did you handle the culture? Because uh, I've lived in Japan for two years, so how was... Uh... How, did, how well did you adapt to the culture? Because obviously the culture has a, a little bit to do with uh, how the training affects you because you're not well, at your home. You know what I'm saying? 
Right. Well, I'll be honest with you. That's what was so freaking difficult for me. And luckily, I got to tell you, the truth of the matter is, there's no way in God's green earth I would have made it without Chris Benoit. Chris Benoit, I met, I literally met, met Chris um, on, uh, well, we actually ate dinner the night before we got on the airplane. I'd never met him before. And we flew to Japan, and they isolated us so hardcore. I mean, it wasn't like we were living with the Americans. We lived in the Japanese dojo. When they first dropped us off, they dro- I'll never forget this, man. They dropped us off. I'm sure you'll know about this. They dropped us off in a Japanese business hotel. And uh, the beds in a Japanese business hotel are five foot. So... <laughs> My legs are hanging over the edge of the bed, freaking 18 inches, for God's sakes. <laughs> uh-huh. The bathroom, I had to duck to go through the door. Um, it was an incredibly uh, powerful culture shock. And initially, both Chris and I really, really struggled. But then what I found was, is just like with changing from amateur wrestling to pro wrestling, that once I decided that I wasn't living in America, that I was in Japan and that I embraced the culture and all the great things that the Japanese culture brings to the table, then it was just a magnificent uh, experience that I will never forget. It was incredibly difficult, but I'm incredibly proud to say that I'm one of probably, what, four or five guys who made it through the Japanese dojo. So it was the hardest part is – learning to embrace another culture. You know, it's when you go, the guys that always struggle with those out-of-town mentalities are guys who spend their whole time trying to get people to speak English to them in a country that doesn't speak English. You know, it's just, it's one of those things, you go to Japan, you you try to ingratiate them by learning their language and, and learning their culture, and if you do that, it made it much easier. The first couple of months when we were, you know, Kicking, trying to you know make it our uh, you know make it America, it was it was the shit. But uh-huh. once we sort of dove into the culture and found all the cool things that that Japan had to offer, especially Tokyo. We lived outside of Tokyo, so we used to eventually we learned how to ride the train systems and go to Rapungi and Shibuya and Harajuku, all the really cool places in Tokyo that uh, had just this incredible cultural diversity. And it was fantastic. So that's how we got through it. Is I, I learned to embrace the culture. When I was in Rapungi, I didn't I didn't notice any of the the cultural diversity. I was I was too busy immersing myself yeah. in the nightlife. If you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> exactly. Well, but then, but then, like I said, there's you know I don't know if you know what Harajuku is, but Harajuku is this place in in uh, downtown uh, Tokyo where every Saturday and Sunday they like they used to. I don't know if they still do this. They would block the streets off, and uh-huh. every it seemed like every freak in the country of Japan would show up there. All the Elvis impersonators, all the punks with, you know, dyed pink hair and the crazy clothes would show up there. So it was a tremendous, tremendous experience, and oh and wow, just a lot of that fun. Sounds, yeah, that's a, that sounds like a lot of fun. So um, when you're when you're training at the New Japan Dojo, how how much after? Uh, after you got there, how much after? Because I know you and Chris Benoit had heard in a previous interview that you did that you said you were ringside at the Antonio Noki Bruiser Brody match. So how uh, yeah. after you've been trained at Dojo, how 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 much into it did they allow you to start doing things like that, like carrying the jackets back and allowing you to kneel ringside at the at the matches? 
they started they started doing that with us very early on. I mean, oh. right from the day we got there, when we started going out on the tours, um, almost immediately, you know, we uh, well, first of all, it wasn't allowed to. It was a demand. We had to kneel at ringside all night long. That was the deal, because that's how they want. They think you learn is by kneeling and watch up close how these guys run a match and how they do what they do. So they they threw us right in right from the get go. So Chris and I started carrying jackets back from day one. So what what other? Because I mean, uh, I, I would like you to also talk about the Noki Bruiser match for your your memories of that, but also. What other historic matches do you remember? Maybe not historic, but matches that you personally just remember. Um, probably my favorite one uh, was, I wish Chris was still around to, to tell this story with me because both of us sat there the whole time with our tongues hanging out and our jaws dropped, is um, the Von Erich brothers showed up one weekend, and at this time one of their kayfabe brothers was Lance Von Erich. <laughs> and uh, they, the Japanese flew him in, and the top, the top guys in New Japan at the time were, of course, Sakaguchi and Inoki. Then you had Fujiwara and um, Kimura. And uh, Kimura had, was the guy that was going to work with Lance Von Erich. And uh, about 15, uh, it was more like about a half hour before Lance's match with uh, Kimura they came out and tapped on our shoulder and said, come back to the dressing room. <clears throat> we went back to the dressing room, and they said, have you guys seen Lance? And we're like, what? They said, yeah, do you know where Lance is? And we're like, uh, no, we've been kneeling at ringside all night. No, no, no. <laughs> they said, well, okay, go back out. So we went back out, and, you know, our job was to escort these guys back and forth to the ring, primarily the Japanese guys because we lived on the Japanese side. Um, they had some of the other young boys. They, they, they didn't like the Americans to escort the Americans out because they thought it looked prejudiced or whatever. I don't know what the deal was. But we always ended up walking out with, with the Japanese. So we walked out with Kimura that night, and Kimura spoke very good English. And he said to me, he, he winked at me and said, watch this match. It's definitely going to be an interesting one. So Chris and I looked at each other, and we started laughing. We went, all right, we, we ain't missing this. So, you know, here's a couple of green marks, you know, Heads just over the top of the ring. And Lance came to the ring, and you could see the instant he walked into the to the arena that he was absolutely blasted on something. I mean, I don't know what he was what he was trashed on, but he was effed up beyond all recognition. And I will never forget he got in the ring and uh he couldn't untie his rope. Now, this is in front of 22,000 people, man. It's like you couldn't wait till after the match to get high, brother. I mean, for the love of God, you know. So we, we sat there, and Kimura put up with it for maybe 30 seconds, and then he proceeded to just kick the shit out of Lance Von Erich. It was so funny. He was shooting, punching him in the face, and he would punch him, and then, like, three seconds after he would punch him, he'd sell it. <laughs> I mean, it, it was like, like, Chris and I just sat there going, oh, my God. So I'd have to say the Lance Von Eric match with Kimura was probably uh, the most memorable match when it comes to that. 
Um, Do you happen to have a date for that, Max? A what? A date. Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to guess that was probably um, maybe November, maybe maybe October, November, December of 86. If yeah, I'm it had to guess. be whenever Lance was upon Eric, so that right. wasn't so, yeah, long so, I would yeah. guess late 86 or early 87. Right. Mm. Okay. Well, I I, I actually have a, a few questions. Um, when you were in the dojo, um, in the New Japan dojo, who was there with you other than Benoit training as far as Gaijin, and who were the trainers? Okay, originally, the, Chris and I were the first two. We were there for five months. Um, and at, towards the very end of it, they brought a guy in by the name of Brian Adams. And uh, but Brian, uh, Brian always pissed me off because Brian and he pissed Chris off too. We both were not happy about Brian because for some reason the Japanese really favored him. I mean, here we had been living in the dojo, busting ass with the Japanese to gain favor with him, and Brian came in and he was lazy. He wouldn't he wouldn't do the shit. He would always figure out a way how to get out of of the hard work. And it pissed us both off. So at that time, Brian was there, and he only lived in the dojo for maybe a couple of weeks, you know, and then he would go and go back to the Air Force base, or he'd go live with his girlfriend. He he was on in the Air Force in Fusa, on the base in Fusa. So he would, you know, he would go to the Air Force base and live with his girlfriend. We wouldn't see him for three or four days. And we'd get up every day and go to the dojo at 10 o'clock and go, where's Brian, you know? So Brian was, I will, uh, you know, he was kind of there. You know, he wasn't actually as much of a part of it as Chris and I. So it was strictly Chris and, and I in the dojo at the time we lived there. Um, and the trainer was uh, Kroneko, Black Cat. I don't know if you know who Kroneko is and who Black Cat yeah. is. I think he just passed oh, yeah. away just a little yeah. while ago, right? Just like last year, I think, uh, yeah, it was last he year. passed away. Yeah, he was genius. We loved, we absolutely adored Kerneko. He he was very hard on us, but just like a a good drill sergeant, you know, or a, a great trainer of any kind, you know, that you you learn to you love you you love to hate them, but by the same token, you know they're doing you a world of good because they just don't cut you any slack. They always, you know, and he was a great teacher, very patient with us, and at the same time, the toughest son of a bitch I ever met. Was Scorpio there as well? Scorpio came after. Oh, okay. And I think cool. Chris may have lived there with Scorpio. I'd already left. I think mm-hmm. Scorpio came after, but I was not there at the time Scorpio was there. Mm. So did did you did you have any matches, actual matches in the in the new, in the New Japan ring? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I uh, debuted. Uh, I think in December of that year, right before I came home, and uh, I, I debuted in some nondescript town, little town, someplace in, J- in Japan, but uh, uh, my biggest match right before I left, the night before I left, was in uh, uh, the Sumo Palace in Tokyo, 25,000 people, and it was against uh, Konga the Barbarian, or Joe. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, and then I went, when I went back after that, 
Then I went back as a gaijin instead of living in the dojo. And then I was there for another four months solid uh, on every tour for, like, another four months. So, yeah, then I wrestled every night, you know. This is going to sound like maybe a stupid question, but I want to go ahead and ask this. Um, Something that I've noticed about some of the New Japan guys, uh, specifically like Kensuke Sasaki and Tony Inoki, um, that they don't wear knee pads. And uh, I've done professional wrestling training here for about eight months. And so uh-huh. knee pads, to me, are very, very important because I, I darted my knee once and I never wanted to do that again. But is there something to uh, maybe the toughness of an individual, or is it like a statement of why certain guys won't wear knee pads? You know, <laughs> the Japanese, when it comes to that kind of shit, they mm-hmm. just, they're these guys that have this, you know, let me let me tell you the story that will, that will, summarize this better than anything one night we were uh we were at the uwf and we were in a little nondescript town uh i believe we were on the island of fukuoka and uh or not the island of uh no what's it's hokkaido we were on hokkaido and fukuoka i think is the big town on hokkaido and uh it, it was a miserable tour it was one of those tours where we wrestled in every farm village for like three weeks and they finally we finally went to this hotel and i'll never forget it was fujiwara that came up to us and he looked at me and chris and he says oh big party tonight and we went <laughs> wow cool so they rented this hotel uh and they rented the whole hotel and they threw out a spread for us that was unbelievable kobe beef chicken oh. top of the line sushi and all the all the sake and beer and and uh, uh, shochu you could ever want to drink, and everybody proceeded to just start to get incredibly blasted. And at the end of the night, these guys stood up, and they, they and this wasn't the first time, but I'll just tell you this one because it was it was like the capstone for me. Um, they stood up, and they would stand toe to toe, and punch each other in the face as hard as they could punch each other until one of them gave up. The next day, in fact, I think I might even still have the magazine, the next day everybody on the bus had black and swollen shut eyes. Oh, my so goodness. That's just, the kind, that's just the nature of them. So, you know, for them to not wear knee pads because they thought it made them tough, you know, that, that it was obviously something they would do until they lost an anterior cruciate, and then they would they start wearing knee pads after they had reconstructed <laughs> surgery, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you had mentioned that you left New Japan. So what uh-huh. were your reasons for wanting to leave New Japan, and then where did you get started back in America? Well, New Japan, um, it wasn't that I left. They have, you know, the way they work is um, they, they believed in training you and you being, you know, the young boy there, mm-hmm. and then when you, and then you would, you know, you would train for however long until it was time for you to leave and go find a career someplace else. And then once you'd made your career happen somewhere else, then they would bring you back as, you know, as a star, if you will, or as a major guy or a guy being on the card. Okay. And so it wasn't a conscious decision. You know, at the end of that first year, um, they sent they sent both Chris and I away, and we went back. And I think Chris ended up going to Mexico a lot, 
And uh, uh-huh. then Chris came back with his character. And uh, I went back a few times after that, but not near as much as Chris did. Chris Okay. You just brought up a good point. Maybe you understand the mentality maybe a little bit better than uh, maybe someone like I will. Uh, there are certain guys, uh, i.e. Kijimuto and Masahiro Chono, and, and guys who they will send to America for extended periods of time and bring them back. Is that? Do you know the selection process of the guys who they feel yeah, need okay, to exactly. in those seasons? Absolutely. The way that works is, um, in fact, I'll tell you, while I was there, there were four dojo bosses, and that's how it works. It's a hierarchy okay. system that you graduate out of. And the first dojo boss when I got there was everybody called him Frankie. I, I don't remember uh, what the hell was his name. He ended up being um, uh, Jessen Tiger. Okay. So he was the first dojo boss. Uh, then the next dojo boss was Muto. I know Muto was Muto was leaving when we got there. That was Jessen uh, Liger or Tiger, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And then it, then it was um, Chono, okay. and uh, I think it was Hashimoto, and then Nogami. So okay. it, it just those guys would graduate comparatively to when the office thought they were ready to leave, and so they would be the dojo boss, they ran the dojo, and then once they were done running the dojo, they would leave, go to America or Canada or Mexico and run their stint there for a year, year and a half till the office thought they were ready to come back. Then they would bring them back as a star on the Japanese side of the card. So were the dojo bosses, were they, the, the people who were selected to be dojo bosses, were these guys that uh, Antonio Noki, whoever was selecting these guys, they were seen as potential uh, superstars later? They well, just the wanted to like the slums of the dojo to be potential dojo boss. That's my question. Well, the, the way it worked is it was a little it was a little more uh, carved in stone than that. Is oh, okay. The, the selection process to get into the dojo was oh my god. I mean, Chris and I used to think we had it bad until we watched them uh, uh, screening for potential guys to come in the dojo, and they would have ten thousand kids show up to want to be in the dojo. And they would beat the ever-loving piss out of these guys. So these these marks had come in, and they would beat them near to death for two weeks. And, you know, it'd start out with 10,000, and by the end of that two weeks, there'd be three guys left standing, and they were so beat up, the only guy who could still move ended up going into the dojo. So you would, once you, you know, they, they had a very systematic approach to it. They would, they would do, it was basically a tryout. They would do a tryout, and if they liked a guy within that, then they didn't always find a guy they liked. But if they found a guy they liked within that system, you know, within that group of guys, then they would bring them into the dojo as the youngest boy, and and they wouldn't do that until the guy that was on the top was ready to leave the company, you know, to to come to the state. So if they brought a new guy into the dojo, then who was ever on top knew that it was time for them to leave. Mm, that's that's very very interesting. That's, okay. that's a very very and interesting. I, I do have a question for you, Max. Um, right. When you were when you were over there, um, who were the uh, the touring guy, Jin? At that time, was Scott Norton there yet? No, no. He came okay, right so... at the very right at the very end. I think I met I think I met Scott maybe once or twice right before I left. So. When I was there, the primary guys were, uh, and I was very fortunate to know him, uh, Dick Murdoch was still incredibly popular and powerful there. 
Bill Eady, I think he was a smash or acts of demolition, um, was, was coming a couple of times a year. Uh, Manny Fernandez, Dr. Death, uh, Scott Hall, um, Bam Bam, uh, Vader, uh, let's see, who else? Uh, Brody, before he died, Brody came there twice, I think, while I was there. And uh, probably a few others, forgive me, I, I failed to mention. Did the guy, wow. Gene, ever pull you to the side and have any talks with you, or were you strictly just seen as a, a Japanese student and you were to be left alone? No, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things Red taught me was, you know, whenever you get a chance and you, see, you meet an old-timer that you like, you know, pull him aside and ask him if he'd watch your match and tell you how you can be better. Don't ask him what you're doing right. Tell, ask him what you're doing wrong and how you can make your matches better. Mm-hmm. So um, one, one night I, I went to Dick Murdoch and I said, uh, hey, Dick, would you, uh, would you mind watching my match tonight and give me some advice on how I can be better, you know, at the wrestling business? He said, sure, kid, I'll watch. So uh, I went out there and uh, my finish was a second rope splash. I slammed the guy in the middle of the ring and uh, went to dive off on him. And they have rubber wrapped around their, their cable instead of it being a rope. It's, a, it's rubber. And all the boys had been on the ropes, you know, with, their, with uh, baby oil and all that. And when I jumped, I lost all my power, went away from me because my boots slipped. And I literally just dropped out of the corner right into the corner, and I had to crawl to the guy to cover him, for God's sake. So I, I got out of the match, I got out of the ring, and Dick Murdoch standing there waiting for me at the curtain, and I said, well, Dick, I have, at, have at it, brother. And he said, well, I got, I got some great advice for you. Um, he said, take two weeks off and then quit the wrestling business. And then uh, Kmart was hiring in Amarillo when I was on my way there. Go get a job there, kid. Because you suck as a wrestler. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, but you know what? Dick was incredibly good to Chris and I. He would take us out every night if we wanted to go. We went out many a nights with the Yakuza and, and partied and ate and just was treated like kings because we were Dick. So, answer your question, we always, when the Guy Kings were there, we always ended up hanging out with them more often than not. And because of that, we got in trouble a few times as well because of the guy. Now, now you being you being a young boy sitting outside the ring, watching watching these performers in the ring, um, what native native workers caught your eye that you would just watch and be in, be amazed? I gotta say, my absolutely, um, uh, absolutely, my favorite wrestler for New Japan wrestling. Not only because he was an amazing worker, but because he was one of the most incredibly kind and nice people I've ever met was uh, Tatsumi Fujinami. Fujinami was just an absolutely wonderful, wonderful guy. And then for me, I got to say, he was my mentor. In fact, I learned my finishing hold in the wrestling business from him um, because he was, again, just a class act, was uh, Fujiwara. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, back to where we were going. So the New Japan Dojo, they basically uh, you said it's time to fly. So you came back to America. So 
did you go back to California looking for work, or where did you end up settling? You know, at the time, this happened to me throughout my wrestling career, to be honest with you. I was a victim of horrible timing in the wrestling business. I really was in a lot of ways. And when I came back, um, the wrestling business had just really started to get its ass kicked. Um, I, all of the little territories, and this is what I mean by that, all the little territories were shutting down. The AWA was leaving. Um, at the time, there was still a pretty good uh, uh, territory in Montreal. It closed. Um, the uh, what was uh, uh, Bill Watts' territory in Texas, yeah. um, UWF? They they had just closed their doors, um, and the only places left for me to even try for uh, was actually uh, either Canada was too hard or Memphis with Jerry Lawler. So I uh, stayed at home for I think four or five months. And I finally got booked in, uh, in, in, in Memphis. I actually got called by both of them, both Stu and uh, uh, Memphis, and I opted to go to, to stay in the States and go to, to Memphis. So I went to Memphis, and I was there for a year. So uh, how was it transitioning from the, the style uh, that New Japan was teaching to uh, the, the Memphis style, which, I mean, every every – place you go and work a different style. How was that transition? Well, you want to talk about... Yeah, exactly. I mean, (laughs) Japan, it's very structured. The bus left at 10 o'clock. If you weren't on it, you got fined. You know, I mean, you you wrestled for an hour and a half before the match every night. Uh, In the ring, we had a a regimented training session there. Then to go to Memphis, well, and most importantly, in Japan, I was making money. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I went to I went to Memphis and started driving. Uh, you know, in in cars, uh, lucky to make two hundred and fifty dollars a week. Uh, you know, and and uh, so it's a it was a it was you know a completely different world, and it was incredibly difficult on my family because I couldn't send any money home. I mean, there was just no way on this on God's green earth that you know if you didn't have friends on the road in in Memphis, and luckily, thank God, there were. There were a lot of girls. There was a lot of friends and people who were such marks for the business when you're in Memphis that so much of the time we ended up being taken care of by the wrestling fans when I was in Memphis. So it was a completely different lifestyle. And uh, I started partying heavy once I got back to the city. I was completely sober and straight when I was in Japan. I'll never forget Doc said to me one day, he goes, he said, you don't smoke weed, kid? And I said, no, he said, you don't bang rats. I said, no, he says, you won't be in the States for 15 minutes, kid, and that shit will change. You know, and uh, <laughs> I, I hate to say it, but, Doc, if you ever hear this interview, you were right. You know, I, I, and, and, and a lot of that, I have to say, is a different kind of necessity, you know, to, to live in that lifestyle uh, in the South and try and make it when you're starving. I lost uh, – I lost 75 pounds in two months in the South. I mean, I just, I went there and we, I mean, we just, I starved. I mean, there was just no money to be made. So it was a very, very difficult transition. But I'll be honest with you, man. I learned uh, so much in Memphis that it was unbelievable. Yeah, so so you came, you came into Memphis and 
What was uh, what was one of your first programs right off the bat? You, you walk in the door, you walk into the TV studio. Um, yeah. Who who had the book at that time? Was it Jarrett or Lawler? Uh, I think it was Lawler, and he put the strap on me like that night. I think. Really, right I think away. I, yeah, yeah, right away, because I was a big new guy and I was a freak and I looked different than anybody else. And he painted six 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 on my forehead and had the Bible thumpers calling and pissed off and wanted me to get my ass kicked because I was Satan and I was already doing the dark thing anyway that nobody had really done up until then, you know. So uh, yeah, he put the strap on me right away, the the championship belt, and then within another two weeks of that, Gary Young and I had the tag team belts as well. So I was and, and what a what a rib that is, you know. You know that ends up being a rib because you're carrying around these heavy goddamn belts. You know, all over the freaking county, all over the states, and they were paying me ass to carry around. So I had two straps I was carrying around at the time. But uh, yeah, I, I immediately got in programs with, uh, like I said, with Jerry Young and I were tag team champions, and then I had a pretty good program with Waller, and that was a lot of fun. I learned a lot working with Jerry. Hmm. Well, there there isn't there isn't anyone you know that that can compare to Jerry. Um, what, what, what do you think of uh, of Lawler as as an in ring talent? You know, I, I love Lawler. He's one of those guys too that uh, I love him because he, he he loved to test you and see what you were made of. Um, partly because you know he was the Booker, he ran the town, and uh, I Lawler was so great, especially being a young heel. You know, he taught me so much because with a guy like Lawler, all you got to do is listen and you'd have a great match. But uh, one of the first matches I worked with Jerry, he uh, we, we did something in the middle of the ring and he punched me in the face as hard as he could punch me. And I'll never <laughs> forget the look on his face. He looked at me and went, oh, shit, I guess that's not going to knock you down. I guess we better start working now, huh, kid? And so from that point on, it was it was a piece of cake. It was a breeze. And I... I loved working with Jerry. I thought he was a great talent. He was starting to get a little old by then. He was starting to get a little tired and uh, had lost a little bit of his edge, but it was still a tremendous honor to work with him, and he taught me a boatload. How much uh, How much did you learn about interacting with the crowd? Because uh, it, it may be something uh, – in, in New Japan, it seems like the crowd is kind – of, the crowd obviously is going to be different depending on – where in the country you're going, but the, definitely the crowd in Japan has that aura to it. So how was it going to work the Japanese crowd, the working the, the Memphis crowd, and how how soon did you pick that up? Well, the Japanese would not let me have a character they, <laughs> because they, want, they wanted me, they wanted to assign it to me, so they called me my real name, which is Daryl Peterson, except they pronounced it, Daru Peterson! <laughs> so, you know, they, they, uh, they, they weren't for the character thing. They, the Japanese were interesting. The Japanese had been had smartened up incredibly by Tiger Mask. He'd written a book called K-Fabe and exposed the whole business. So oh, wow. the Japanese, yeah, they, they're a very smart crowd. And the Japanese, I, I always really dug the way the Japanese thought about the wrestling business because they cheered for you um, more like it was an Olympic, you know, event you know if your high spot was good they'd cheer for your high spot because it was good you know what i mean not because the, the match had a great story 
um, the Japanese were not great storytellers. In fact, I, I didn't learn how to tell a story with the Japanese. So I, I learned fundamentals and, and good wrestling fundamentals with the Japanese. But you don't develop a character until you come to the place where, you know, character is everything. I mean, America is about that, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're show and glamour, and uh, the Japanese were technical excellence. So I think it was a great way to... I think it was a great way to learn and a great way to, uh, you know, learn fundamentals in Japan and then come to America and develop my character, which is exactly what I did and uh, loved every second of it. So you, so you brought up this point. Uh, it's something I didn't know that Tiger Mask had wrote this book. Do you know around what time he wrote this book and how that may have influenced the Japanese professional wrestling scene? Because that's, that's a fact I'd never heard of. Well, according to the way I heard the story was that Tiger Mask, was um, had gone to them uh, for a raise, and he I guess he he was selling out everywhere he went, mm-hmm. and he went to them and said, "I need a raise. I know I'm selling out for you guys. I want more money," and they shit on him. They said, "No, mm-hmm. shut up and get back in your corner," which is typical of the Japanese hierarchy, and mm-hmm. it pissed him off so bad he said, "Hell with you guys. I'll expose the business if you're going to treat me like that." Now that's. I don't remember all the detail. I'm sure there's more that I heard, and I don't remember it all, but that's the crux of the biscuit that I heard. So um, I, I would have to say that that would have been probably early 80s, late 70s. I don't know when Tiger Mask was there. But we, right, used, to watch, right. we used to watch Tiger Mask. Cause it, I, I do remember this. Tiger Mask and, uh, and uh, Dynamite had some of the most amazing matches. I, we would sit at the dojo and watch those matches. And, uh, the, I mean, they were matches of gold to the Japanese. So we'd sit there for hours and hours and hours and watch Tiger Mask and Davy Boy. And uh, so I, I'm going to guess probably maybe, you know, early 80s, very late 70s, the Tiger Mask was there. And, uh, 84. Yeah, yeah I, I wrote the book in 84. So there is a book called yeah, what, what, here's Here's the story. Um he was having problems with uh, the New Japan office and right. and also the All Japan office over, as well. I, I heard it was over money. It was, and All Japan purchased the uh, Tiger Mask gimmick from uh, New Japan, and they gave it to Misawa. And, ah. And it, it pissed off uh, Sayama, yeah, okay. and he said, fuck you, I'm writing this book. That sounds exactly like what happened, what, the way I heard the story. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what happened. So the Japanese, man, they, they are so fun, man, because the other side of that is, man, if you do your high spots and they love what you're doing in the ring, they, even though the character is not as critical to them, they still love the gaijings and the and the, the character um, that, they, I mean, they tried to run without Americans. They tried to run without the gaijings, and they failed. They knew they could, that, that's why they always continued to bring the Americans over there because the Americans is what brought the color to the wrestling business for the Japanese. And so um, even though they, the Japanese loved it, they loved the Americans for that, but they loved the Japanese for their technical excellence. Mm. Okay, so um, you, you so you went to Memphis and as the territories were starting to die, and um, – so what was your next step after Memphis? Is that when you went to WWF, or did you go somewhere in between? Actually, what I did is I went home, and uh, I started my own wrestling company. 
I started a little organization called the uh, WWA. I had a buddy in Utah who had bought a ring from, uh, uh, I'll tell you, you guys get a kick out of this, from uh, uh, Billy Jack. Okay. He, he started Haynes, a territory. Right? Yeah, Billy, Billy Jack Haynes. He started a, a territory in Oregon to run mm-hmm. competition against uh, 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 Don Owen. Don Owen. Don Owen. And mm-hmm. uh, he failed. But the rings he bought and had made were brilliant. And so this buddy of mine had heard about these rings, and we drove to Oregon and bought them. And they were beautiful rings. They were such great wrestling rings. They, they had the compressed spring with the retainer in the middle. They were absolutely a joy to work on. And they had pad. They were, I mean, they, they were actually, you know, made it, you know, no matter how you look at it, taking a bump is a, is a difficult task. And if the rings are shit, it's even worse. So if you uh-huh. get a chance to work in a great ring, it makes it a lot easier. So we went to uh, Oregon, bought those two rings. At the time, my nephew was in – I had a nephew, God rest his soul. He's dead now. He got in a car accident. But he was wrestling in Oregon with Steve Dahl as the uh, Texas – or the Southern Rockers. Um, Steve Dahl and Scott Peterson was my nephew's name. And uh, so I went up there and hung out with my nephew. And uh, Brian was actually uh, – Brian Adams had gone there after he left Japan – so I saw those guys there at the time, and we bought the rings. I came back home, and uh, we started running little shows. And, you know, actually, we started doing really pretty damn good. We had a, because Utah, especially there's, there's some very remote towns um, in Utah, and so we would go to the smaller towns that were very removed where they didn't have any entertainment. So the wrestling business was still intriguing to those people because this was still before – you know, satellite TV and cable and all that shit hadn't really hit that hard yet. So these people would still go out to a, a wrestling match on a Saturday night in a gymnasium at the high school. So mm-hmm. that's what I did. I did that from um, 89 till I think 89 and 90. Um, and uh, I had Bam Bam come out. I had uh, uh, Louis Piccoli came and uh, – we did three big matches in my hometown area. We did one in Salt Lake, one in Pleasant Grove, which was my hometown, and then we did one in Ogden. And then, uh, we, like I said, we just did small shots all over the place. The name of the company was the WWA, Western Wrestling Alliance. So I did that till 90, and then in 90, Chris, <laughs> Chris is so funny. He would, he, would, he would never say who he was when he called me on the phone. But I knew him so well, he'd call me up and he'd go, Daryl, what are you doing? And I'm going, Chris, how the hell are you, brother? He goes, where are you working, brother? I'm like, dude, I can't get a job. The, the business is in the shitter. He goes, well, how about I get you a job in Germany? They'd love you. Otto Vons would love you, man. And I said, I'd love it. And uh, he got me a gig with, uh, put, my, put a word in for me with Otto Vons. And uh, I went there in the spring of Right before the summer of ninety, and I was there for two years. Oh, so what are your memories of uh, working in Germany for Otto Wands? Oh God, that that was uh, once again. You know, uh, they have a completely different style. I'm, I'm sure you guys <laughs> know they rest they wrestle in rounds. Um, uh, I've heard Lance Thorne tell some stories about Germany. So yeah, you know, it's it's uh, you have to learn a completely different mentality. Um, you li- I mean, one of the things that's crazy about Germany is, you know, like, for example, in Hanover, we lived in the same town behind the wrestling tent 
for 65 days and wrestled in the same building every night for 65 days. Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah. And the, the houses then go down? or? Oh, yeah, it would be the shits, you know, three <laughs> nights or four nights of the week. But then uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, they would just rock. And the Germans are funny because the, uh, just the, the Germanic breed in, in, in any way, shape, or form. They just, all you got to do for the Germans and the Austrians is give them a reason to drink beer and they'll show up. And that's exactly what happened, man. You know, they, 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 they would build the ring with, on a place that's called the Schutzenplatz, which is uh-huh. a, just a great big place in the middle of the city where, you know, any kind of carnival or fair or flea market would, would come to because it's just a big open area for them to go and, uh, you know, for them to bring any kind of traveling circuses, whatever, that was the area where people would 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 come to. And you know, all through the year, there would be all you'd have to do is drive by the shoots and plots, and there'd be a tent there. And if there was a tent there, and you liked wrestling, um, you'd go down and come to the matches. And so people would, uh, you know, more often than not, most of the people that we had consistently were people who were there every single night. And they would just come and get fucked up drinking beer and eating bratwurst and then uh, be there again the next night, you know. Mm. So how long were you out in Germany? Well, it wasn't just Germany. It started off in Graz, Austria. Um, And and then we'd go to Vienna. Vienna, we were in Vienna. I think we were in Graz for two or three weeks. And then we'd go to Vienna. We were in Vienna for 45 days. We'd get to Hanover. in the fall, like late summer, early fall, we'd be in Hanover for 65 days. Then we'd go to some place for like 10 or 15 days after that. Like one year I was there, we went to Dortmund. The other year we went to Hamburg and a bunch of other little shots. And then it would always finish in Bremen, which was kind of Otto's hometown in Germany. So um, I was there for two years, and the tour lasted like seven and a half, eight months. Okay. So when I, I remember home, home. I was home for four months, and I turned around, went. I turned around, went back. I, I, need, I, need, I need to mention I'm, one name first, Alex. Hold on just a second. Stephen Wright. Any stories about Alex's father? You know what? You will hear me say nothing but incredible things about Steve Wright. I freaking love that guy. He taught me the the German language. He was very patient. He was a great teacher, and more importantly than that, Steve was one of the few people who loved my gimmick. You know, at the time, I I introduced the guitar-playing wrestler in Germany, and it got over like crazy. I mean, like crazy. And there were only two people who believed in my gimmick, Fit Finley and Steve Wright, and they both just said, hey, fuck everybody else. Do your thing, Max. The shit will get over, and it did. We by the end of Hanover, the year I introduced my gimmick, um, we were selling out on the weekends. I mean, we were we were we were doing buku business, and then we went to Bremen and did the same thing. And it, and it was because I had two allies in that organization. In fact, Otto wasn't going to let me play the, my guitar in the ring, and and Finley went to him and said, "Look, are you a crackhead? How many wrestlers you ever had that can play the guitar?" and the, the Germans loved it, just loved it. So I, my hat is always off to Stephen Wright and always off to Fit Finley. There I was going to say, I was, I was wondering, do you have any good Fit Finley, uh, other than the one you just said, do you have any good Fit Finley stories? 
Oh, Jesus, I wouldn't even know where to start, brother. <laughs> I, will tell you, I will tell you my favorite one, though. We were in Hanover. We just got into Hanover the first year. And uh, Fit had a beautiful German wife. And uh, we went to this, this uh, bar in Hanover the very first night we were in town. And uh, Larry Cameron was there, Joe Cruz, uh, Johnny Smith, um, and a couple of other Americans were there. And uh, Fit says, come on, we're going to go to this bar tonight. And so we went to this bar, and this is really when I learned what, I mean, I already knew what a badass Fit was because I could sit and tell you some of the funniest stories about Fit. You know, I mean, honestly, that dude had me laughing so much, and he taught me a lot as a wrestler. But uh, this is the night I realized with Fit, he's one guy you do not fuck with. I don't care how big and how badass you are. This guy was a master. He's a master worker. He was a great amateur wrestler. He came from an amateur wrestling family, and he was the toughest son of a bitch. And not only that, he was a, uh, I think he was a, I think he was a, 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 like a mercenary in the British Army uh, in Northern Ireland. I, I'm sure he had, had confirmed kills as a, as a, a British officer fighting the uh, IRA. Um, and he was—he is just one of the toughest son of a bitches I ever met. So he invited us to this bar, and all the Americans went. So we go to the bar, and Cruz is standing next to Fit and his girlfriend at the bar. And I love—I'm one of those people where you know I eat three or four volumes and then stand over in the corner and just watch shit go down because I love watching people. You know, so I would just kind of stand back and watch the dynamic of how people interacted with wrestlers. So I'd take a couple of values and drink a beer, and I'm standing back in the corner, and uh, I'm watching, you know, the crowd come in and watching how they're interacting with Fit. And uh, this guy walks around the bar and sizes Fit up. He's drunker than Cooter Brown. He's got one eye closed, and he starts sizing up his Fit's wife. And uh, Fitz watching this guy, and finally Fitz spoke perfect German because his wife was German. So Fitz had already been in Germany for years and years anyway, so he spoke perfect German. And so anybody that think they could insult him or talk down to him in German, they had another thing coming because he knew the language. So he's sitting there talking, this guy's sizing up Fitz's wife, and he looks at Fitz, and Fitz, you know, a foot shorter than this guy. This guy was probably 6'2", six, 6'3", six, a big German guy. And uh, he's sizing up Fitz's wife, and Fitz said to him, hey, you know, piss off. And the guy goes, yeah, whatever. And he turns around and he starts, starts talking to Manuela. And I will never forget this. I am not shitting you. I have never seen anybody drop as fast as this dude dropped. I don't, I don't know if he punched him. I don't know if he headbutted him. I don't know if he grabbed his nuts. I don't know what happened. But this guy dropped. It was a show early, but, you know. Yeah, bro, yeah. <laughs> Whatever it was, it was effective, brothers, because he, he dropped like a ton of shit. And all of a sudden, the guy, and what was so cool about it is nobody noticed. The guy just hit the <laughs> ground, and nobody, he, he went down so fast, it was like he dropped through a fucking trap door. I mean, so nobody even noticed this guy going down, right? So all of a sudden, this guy stands up. Cruz did not even see this guy go down. And the guy gets up, and he looks straight at Joe Cruz, and he leaves the bar. And I thought, uh-oh, this is trouble. And it wasn't five minutes, and this guy comes back in with a cop. Now, I don't know about you, 
But going to jail in a foreign country is one of the scariest thought processes you could ever have. You know what I mean? Yeah, last thing I want to do Exactly. Last thing I wanted to do was understand, you know, a culture from, you know, an inmate status, for God's sakes, right? (laughs) (laughs) So here comes a cop, and they grab Cruz and take him outside. And Fit and I and all the Americans followed right outside with him. So we get outside, and this cop says, the guy says, looks at the cop, and he says, this is the guy. And the cop says, did you hit this guy? And Cruz looks at him, and he goes, dude, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. What do you mean did I hit this guy? No, I didn't hit this guy. And he goes, I think you hit him. You're going to jail. And Cruz goes, hey, look, man. I did not hit this guy, I swear to God. I did not hit him. So they're standing there arguing about this, and finally the cop just says, get in the car, you're going to jail. At which time, just to show you the integrity of Fit Finley, Fit steps out of the crowd and he says, officer, that guy didn't hit that guy. I hit him. And the officer looked at Fit and laughed and said, no, you didn't. And Fit goes, no, officer, I'm telling you the truth. It was me that dropped the guy. And the cop goes, no, you didn't. It wasn't you that dropped the guy. It was this guy. And Fit goes, no, I'm telling you, it was me that dropped the guy. The cop said, no, you didn't. You're going to jail. Pointed at Cruz and said, get in the car. And now Fit's begging this cop not to take Cruz to jail. And right then, 